All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Obadiah, smallest book in the Old Testament. I was listening, um, and, and we'll try to get this clip maybe next week or on down the road. Uh, we're going through the Minor Prophets, 12 books in the Bible. Uh, they're called the Minor Prophets because they're small. There's not a ton of chapters. It doesn't take too long to read. And uh, it's interesting. It's hard to name all 12 books. And uh, there was a, a clip this week that blew up on the Internet. And uh, Jamie Foxx was uh, asked if he was a vegan. He goes, no, I'm Baptist. And then he quotes every book of the Old Testament, getting all 12 minor prophets right. And then he goes, and it's about Jesus, and that's how I'm saved. And I thought, man, that is a great summary of the minor prophets. And so when we look at these books written a long time ago, they show us very important aspects of who God is and what He's done. And so when we go through the book of Hosea, the meanings found in the marriage and the marriage points to the mercy of God. It is a book that shows how merciful God is to His people. When we are unfaithful, God is still faithful, pursuing His people. And then we look at the book of Joel, and it shows us the discipline of God. How when we wander away from God, God comes and draws us back to Himself. He doesn't let us rest on things that can't hold us up. He draws us back to Him. Self. And then last week with the book of Amos, we see that God is the God of justice. God cares about inequality. He cares about injustice. He cares about the oppressed. And He will act. Justice will roll down like the waters. And then we get to the book of Obadiah, and we see that God is the God of wrath. So we're going to look a little bit about what that means today. And I think it's interesting. We have Obadiah today and then Jonah next week. And Jonah shows the compassion of God. And so I think it's, it's neat how the Bible builds and shows us the character of God. And I think when it comes to what we cover today, the wrath of God, there are many things that are confused about God. I think some people picture God as this old guy in the clouds with a white beard, Always happy, always in a good mood, very soft. That's not the God of the Bible. When God shows up, it is a terrifying thing. When people, you and I, stuck in our sin, behold His glory and His holiness. Good dudes in the Bible, when they see His glory, hit their face. Isaiah does that. Job does that. Paul in the New Testament does that. I want us to see... And catch a glimpse of the glory of God because when that happens, our lives will be transformed. And that's exactly what Obadiah does today. So let's pray and then we'll dig in. Father, I pray that uh, you help us focus on your word today. Help us hear from you. Help us catch a glimpse of your glory. Change us. Don't let us be the same as when we entered this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In Psalm 2... It talks about the nations. In Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6, listen to what the psalmist writes. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And so these armies are amassing. They are powerful. They are aligning against God. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So they're setting themselves up to take over. And then check how God responds. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God will not be messed with. The nations are nothing compared to His glory and His greatness. And when you look at the military might of the United States or the military might of Russia or China or anybody else, all together, nothing compares to the greatness of God. And he shows there's two people, two groups of people throughout history. Those who belong to him and those who oppose him. And Obadiah paints this picture with the Israelites in Edom, which represents... God's people, and the nations. And we are in one of those two camps. There is no in-between. And Obadiah also deals with what happens when people get away with it. What happens when somebody does something evil and they get away with it? Obadiah answers that question. And his answer is nobody gets away with it. Nobody gets away with it. God sees... And he will judge, and he will make right what we have made wrong. We will have to give an answer to our judge. God is the creator and sustainer and judge. And the world does not want to hear that. But I have a question for you. If I told you the sun was cold, does it make the sun cold? No. And so me saying, hey, God loves you, uh, you'll be fine, it's not a big deal, your sin's not a big deal, it doesn't change the fact that God is holy and demands righteousness. And that people are storing up wrath for themselves from God unless they find the way of escape, whose name is Jesus. Nobody gets away with it. Nobody gets away with it. It was interesting this past week, the uh, Golden State Killer was finally put on trial, murdered 13 people. He's in his 80s now. He got away with it for most of his life, and people are like, well, he's getting off easy. He destroyed the families of all of those people, ruined their lives. He's getting off easy. Nobody gets off easy. Death is not the end. When we die, we will face judgment. And that is a terrifying thing or it is an awesome thing because we're covered in Christ. And so that is where we are digging into today. Nobody gets away with it. Um, we were over at my grandma's. It was some, uh, some holiday. We were out kicking the ball. And, and listen, I know this, but I was young. Never kicked the ball in the front yard at my grandma's house. Right? She has a backyard. There was a garden. It was huge. You could kick this thing a mile and no problem. But in the front yard, small front yard, busy street. And so I made sure we won't kick the ball in the street. And so I kicked it towards the house. Well, Grandma had all of these little gadgets that you see in some yards. Well, one of, this, one of these gadgets were a hummingbird, a glass hummingbird on a glass stand. I'm thinking, that's small. I'm not going to hit that. So my cousin pitches. I kick it. I get a hold of it. And I'm admiring my shot. And as it goes, it starts to turn, and I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. Boom. Hits the bird. 
hits this hummingbird, and for a second it looked like the hummingbird was alive. That thing started flying, and I'm looking at my cousin. I couldn't say it fast enough, catch the bird. But he goes after the ball. The bird goes. I'm like, not the sidewalk. Bam. Hits the sidewalk. Glass shatters. I look at my cousin. My cousin we're all dead, right? You don't want to face the wrath of grandma. So we do what most people would have done. We get the dustpan and the broom. Like, hey, grandma won't know if we hide this hummingbird. Get it, sweep it up. We put it in the garbage can. But the problem was that glass pole that held the hummingbird. Couldn't figure out how to do it. I couldn't break it. So we just stuck it in the garbage can. But we were smart. We put it under a bag, a white bag of garbage already. And then we go back to playing. We end the day. We go home. And I'm thinking, ha, I made it. And then later on that night, my dad comes and says, Ben, anything happen at grandma's today? And, and you know when parents ask probing questions, and you already know that they know the answer. And I go, well, Dad, yeah, I'm a, uh, we had a little accident. He goes, why didn't you tell me? And this is what happened. Grandma took another bag of garbage, put it on the can, and pushed down. And guess what hit her hand? That metal pole standing. <laughs> and so now it went from breaking a hummingbird feeder to cutting Grandma's hand. It just, I just kept digging because I thought I could get away with it. And you know what? There's a lot of people that think they can get away with it. There's a lot of people that live however they want to. And pride tells you that you can do that. Live for yourself. Live however you want to. Do whatever you want to. Say whatever you want to. Spend your money however you want to. This is your life. Live it up. But you can't get away with it. You are created for so much more than yourself. We were created for the glory of God. And nobody gets away with it. And so what are we going to do about the wrath of God? And there's two options. We're either storing up wrath for ourselves or we're hidden in Christ. And in Christ, the wrath of the Father is satisfied. And now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So you can try to hide or you can run to the cross. So let's dig into Obadiah and see what he has for us. Number one, Number one, pride will deceive you. Starts off, this is the vision of Obadiah. Now listen, there's only 21 verses. Many of you may have not known there is a book in the Bible called Obadiah. He has a vision. God gives him a word, and it's against Edom. Now, real quick for Edom, for a little bit of history. The patriarchs, God calls Abraham to go, and he has a son, Isaac, and Isaac has a son, Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And those sons become Israel, God's people. But Jacob also has a brother named Esau. And they didn't get along. They butt heads. But eventually their relationship is reconciled. And you see that God blesses Esau. And he has a ton of kids who become Edom. And Jacob has a ton of kids. And they become Israel. And so they live in different areas. But they are family. They are related. And what happens is Babylon comes in about 587 and destroys Jerusalem, taking God's people captive, taking Jacob's descendants captive. And Edom is hiding out in the cliffs where they live. They're protected by their location. They're protected by their army. They're protected by their wisdom. And what happens is people, the Israelites, who are surviving and escaping the Babylonians, 
are captured by their family. They run, Edom captures them, and turns them into the Babylonians. And it's the idea of, you should be one of us, not one of them. Can you imagine your brother getting beaten up in a fight, runs to you, and instead of helping him, you take him back to the bully for him to get beat up more. This is what Edom did. So let's read and see what happens, and you'll see how pride deceives this nation. See this in verse 2. Behold, I will make you, a small, make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Did you guys know there was a powerful nation called Edom? No. You want to know why? Because they're not around anymore. They thought they were big. Pride. God made them small. Next verse. Verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle... Though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. They lived in a mountain. That is a stronghold. Armies can't come up and invade. And God says, this is not a hard thing. You think you fly with the eagles, I can bring you down. But we keep reading. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed... Would they, have not, would they have not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave the gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. And so what he's saying is thieves come, they take what they need, but they leave some. The people that gather the grapes, they come, they take the grapes, but there's some left over. He's saying what's about to happen to you, Edom, in judgment, there will be nothing left. You will be destroyed. God's wrath is coming on this nation. Verse 7. All of your allies have been driven to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you, and you have no understanding. You see, Edom thought they were friends with Babylon, but Babylon says, nope, we're just using you. And now they've come to destroy them. Verse 8, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the Mount Esau? You see, they relied on their counselors, on their wisdom, and God gave them no understanding. And then you see what else they rely on in verse 9. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Your mighty warriors have been turned into wimps. And so I want us to see the pride of Edom. We live in a place nobody can touch. We have smarter guys than anybody else. We have better armies than anybody else. Nobody's going to touch us. And God speaks and humbles. Now, this is on a nation. But Edom is representing the nations. You see that in verse 15. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon what? Or upon who? All the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Judgment's coming. The wrath of God is coming. And your pride, your pride, the things you thought you could escape, will keep you from turning to me. There is no escape. And you see, that happens to us in our own hearts. There's the pride that we think that we're good enough on our own. 
There's the pride that we're strong enough on our own. We don't need God. We don't care what he has to say. And that pride will deceive you and lead you to destruction. And so we keep reading. It doesn't get any better for Edom. You see why the judgment is poured out from 10 verse 14. Violence he's done to his brother, verse 10. On verse 11, on that day you stood aloof, right? So you see bad things happening, and instead of running to to help, you stand back. And not only do you stand back instead of helping, you celebrate that they're getting whooped. These are your family members. This is your kin. This is your brother, and you're celebrating their downfall. And then... After they're taken captive, the survivors you're turning in so you can go into their city and take their wealth and move into their houses and live it up. Now, real quick, you want to know what Israel's asking right here? Where is God? Where is God? Why is this happening to me? Does he not see what Edom's doing? And there's three things I imagine Israel was thinking. I think one... God doesn't see it. He doesn't know what's going on. And when you see evil, sometimes you might have those thoughts. Does God know, not know what's happening here? How is he allowing this to happen? And then I think there was another thought that the Israelites might be having. No, God knows. He's just unable to do anything about it. He's not powerful enough to stop the enemies. And sometimes we might think that. Right? When you have a loved one that's dying of cancer, God is able, what, why is he not coming to the rest? What's going on here? Is God not powerful enough? Or, thirdly, maybe God just doesn't care. Maybe he's indifferent. And I imagine the Israelites were thinking all of these. Does God know what's going on? Is he powerful enough? Or maybe he just doesn't care. And I think that represents a lot of times what happens to us when we see evil. And what Obadiah says is, yes, God knows. He has a plan and he's working it to perfection. Judgment is coming. Death is not the end. God is working all things according to his plan. His kingdom will be forever. You can trust him. So the question is this morning, is pride keeping you from God? Which leads us to the second thing. If pride deceives us, check out what delivers us. Humility. And in humility, we see this, that God is sovereign. He's in control. God calls people back to himself. He uses the nations for judgment. He pours out wrath. He calls people to account. He shows up and judges. All throughout the minor prophets, you see this. You see this in Joel. He controls locusts to come and humble a people. Only God can do that. He raises up a nation and then he destroys a nation. God's wrath is perfected in his love for others. Only God can do that. The minor prophets paint a huge picture of who God is. You have to catch a glimpse of his greatness. And then you see it here. Uh, you guys remember Job, right? Job in the Old Testament. There are a lot of bad things happening to Job. And he was wondering what is going on, right? His, his family dies. He so, uh, boils break out on his feet. He can't even walk around. It's a massive heartache in, in, Jonah, uh, in Job's life. 
And Job has these friends that show up and they're like, well, what'd you do? You obviously deserve this. But we see that God already said, no, Job's a blameless dude. He didn't do anything to deserve this. And Job doesn't understand what's going on. And then finally he asks, I don't know what, what God's doing. And then what happens? God shows up. God shows up. And so check out in chapter 38, if you're taking notes, just write down Job 38. And we're going to look at the first four verses. Then the Lord answered Job out of the world when it said, Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know who stretched out his hand. And so what happens is God shows up to Job. Job is saying, hey, God, you don't know what's going on. And God shows up and says, you don't know God. You don't know me. And he asks him, hey, who did the measurements here? Who created this? Who's sustaining this? And you see this verse after verse after verse. Then you get to chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am a small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. But God doesn't let him off the hook. He goes back, dress for action. I will question you. And then for the rest of that chapter, and then chapter 41, he's just asking him questions that Job has no idea how to answer. God is showing Job his greatness and his glory. And then I want you to see his response, Job's response to God. And God never explained to Job what's happening. But you'll see that Job is satisfied with God's answer. Chapter 42, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make known to me. I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Why was Job satisfied without getting an answer to his question? He saw the glory of God. And when he saw his greatness, you want to know what happened? Two things. He saw how holy and awesome his God is, and then how sinful he was. And you think, I think that's our biggest problem. I think... We have a small view of God and a high view of ourselves. I think we have a small view of sin and a high view of ourselves. But when you catch a glimpse of the glory of God, that's flipped. And that's exactly what Job does. That's exactly what Obadiah does to the people. The day of the Lord's coming. The day of the Lord's coming. He's able to humble a people. And he's able to restore a people. But you also see the wrath of God. So you see, verse 15, As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. That's the wrath of God. That is a terrifying thing. 
God is able to bring down the proud heart, the proud nation. I want us to look just real quickly at five things about God's wrath. Because I want us to be careful here. Because we have a lot of examples of wrath throughout history, and there's a lot of bad examples. Right? So when you think of wrath, sometimes you might think of somebody losing their temper. Losing their temper. Someone that their ego's hurt, and so they're going to lash out violently. That's not what you see with the wrath of God. His ego's not hurt. He's not throwing a temper tantrum. He's not vindictive. No, God sees sin and rebellion, and His wrath is poured out because if it's not, we do not have a loving God. If sin and injustice were able to go rampant and be swept under the rug, God would not be just. And yet we see, no, God will hold us accountable. And so I want us to see some things about wrath. Number one, God's wrath is just. God's wrath is just. He doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't lose control. Romans 2.5, check this out. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Nobody's going to trick him. Nobody's going to get away with it. He sees everything, wisdom and infinite, and able to judge righteously. He doesn't need a jury. When he speaks, it is just and righteous. I I like what J.I. Packer said about this. It says, God's wrath in the Bible is never self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that is anger so often. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God will make right what evil has made wrong. Number two, God's wrath is to be feared. God's wrath is to be feared. I think this is where at least what I've seen in our high schools and in our nation, people think they can shrug off God. God said, hey, this is the way, and people are like, eh, whatever. Well, when the day of the Lord comes, nobody's shrugging. This is a terrifying time to fall into the hands of God as judge. And, and so you, you see this. Matthew 25, 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And then you see this. In Romans three twenty three, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so you see, even here, you see you're in two categories. One of two categories. You're either going to eternal punishment or eternal life. And we've all sinned and fallen short. So we all are guaranteed eternal punishment unless, unless someone rescues us. Because this is what we've earned. Nobody in the room is holy. Nobody in the room is perfect. We've all missed the mark. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And God's judgment is coming on our sin. None of us get to stand before God and plead our case. Well, I went to church so many times. I gave this much money. I helped this many people. None of that meets the standard God has set. Be holy as I am holy. You don't get to God on your own. That's what a proudful heart will say. Well, I'm better than this person, so I'm okay before God. That's not the standard. The standard is perfection, and we don't meet it. Therefore, we deserve to be judged. 
Number three, God's wrath is consistent in the Old Testament and New Testament, consistent throughout the Bible. Sometimes uh, people get this wrong idea that God's mean in the Old Testament, nice in the New Testament. It's not what you see. From Genesis to Revelation, God is the same. God is the same. So there's a couple of verses on the screen. You can write that down if you want to. Um, from Jeremiah and then Revelation. Number four, God's wrath magnifies His glory by acting against sin. God's wrath magnifies His glory by acting against sin. You see, this is in Romans 12, 19. This is in Hebrews 10, 31. God is not letting things slide by. And then that gets us to our final point. God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. And so I want us to understand what we have coming apart from Christ. Judgment is a terrifying thing. Um, I don't know if you've ever had to stand before the judge. Um, if you've ever been pulled over, that's a terrifying thing. Scary thing. Police comes up. If you've ever gotten a ticket, terrifying thing. Can you imagine standing before a perfect and holy, all-powerful God? So we see this in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was the purpose. That's why Jesus came, to save us. Now, I want you to think about this. Think about how pride works. God sends His Son to die on a cross, and people are like, ah, that's not for me. It's not for me. So I'll give you an example. And Mark, I talked to you about this. If, Brian, let's say the only way you'd be saved is if I send Camden and she'd have to die for you, right? So she, whatever it is, she dies and, and now you are saved from whatever. And let's say Brian's like, ah, that's not that big a deal. Ah, I don't want that. Do you think that I would be angered by that? Yeah. You, you just blew off Sacrifice for, and just so we're, we're sure, Brian, I love you. I don't think I'm going to send Camden to save you, right? You see, God's love in sending his son, dying on a cross, and then people are like, eh, that's not for me. As if that's not a big deal. God's saying our sin's a big deal. When Jesus lays his life down, he's saying it's a huge deal. The wrath of God is satisfied in Christ. You see this in the garden. He kneels down in the garden and says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What's the cup? Why was Jesus so scared to go to the cross? Like, obviously that's painful, right? The crucifixion's not fun. But that's not what Jesus was terrified of. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, knows that the Father is going to pour His wrath out on your sin and my sin, and that's what He's going to the cross for, and that is terrifying. That's the cup He's saying, please let this pass. He's not afraid of some nails, as painful as those are. He's saying, the cup of the wrath of the Father. I don't want to drink that, but if there's no other way, I'll do it. That's grace. And then we see the reward of that. In Hebrews 9, 26 to 28, it says, But as it is, Jesus appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as he, it is appointed for man to die once, you and I, 
Uh, we went walking yesterday. We love to walk in the cemetery, that Mother of God cemetery. Huge. You want to know what's a great reminder? All of us one day will die. Unless Jesus returns, it's appointed for us to die. But that's not the end. It's appointed for man to die once, and then after that, what? Comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So God's wrath poured out on Jesus, those in Christ no longer face the wrath of God. The wrath already was consumed by the sacrifice of Christ. So we look forward to Jesus returning. The nations, the nations are terrified of Jesus returning. Judgment's coming for them. Freedom, restoration, eternal life coming for us. And I'll leave you with this verse from Romans 5. 8 and 9. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. I want us to catch this this morning. When we see the grace and the length Christ went for us, when we see how much was accomplished on the cross, my sin for all eternity paid for because of Jesus. There's no more wrath for me. Just grace. His righteousness I get, my sin He paid for. When you grasp that, that changes your life. That sets you free from being selfish. That sets you free from living for sin. Now you live for your Savior. Your life will be directed to His glory because He accomplished everything for you. I'll leave you with this. We went to uh, Myrtle Beach this past year for a family vacation. On the way back, uh, we had to go through the North Carolina Turnpike. So uh, we're traveling, and Mom let us borrow her van. Our, van. our van makes some noises it shouldn't be making. And so Mom was gracious enough give us her van, and we're moving. We're getting through North Carolina. Uh, they have these toll booths, though, with the, the way we went, but there was nobody in them. So we just go by, boom, boom, boom. I'm thinking, this is nice. We're on this nice road. Don't have to pay for anything. Just fly through. Well, yesterday, Dad called me and goes, hey, uh, Ben, you didn't happen to go through the North Carolina Turnpike on your way back. I'm like, yeah, that actually I did. How'd you know that? Or why are you asking me now? It's kind of, I said, well, I just got something in the mail with a uh, picture of mom's license plate. I go, oh, Dad, how bad is it? He goes, well, you passed four booths without paying. I go, oh, what's wrong? He's like, I'll take care of it. Turns out it was only like $5, so that was a relief. I was afraid it was a speeding ticket, but Dad covered it. Didn't cost me a thing, but cost Dad five bucks. Not a big deal, right? I could have covered that. I'm glad he did, though. When we look at our sin, somebody has to cover it. If not, it'll take all eternity for you and I to pay for that. And so when we see the wrath of God, you have two options. You have two options. Please get this. Don't miss. This is the whole point of the sermon. Two options with your sin. You are either storing up wrath for yourself for all eternity separated from God or all the wrath 
that is rightly directed your way and my way is satisfied, not because we're good, but because of grace, because of what Jesus has done. So when it comes to the wrath of God, and you see this in Obadiah, he says, hey, there's a way of escape. The king will be ruling the kingdom forever. When you trust the king, the wrath's been covered. So today, are you storing up wrath or is the wrath of God satisfied in Christ? You have that decision. That is the way of escape. If you've never made that decision, do not take this lightly. This is just a warning. This is just a warning. This is what we see with Obadiah. This is God trying to get your attention. Stop storing up wrath. Here's the awesome part. When you turn to Christ, God no longer is judge. He is Father. Jesus is your brother. He is Savior. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ. Please understand that gift. And so when I ask, when I pray, God, open up your eyes to see the glory of Christ. That is a glorious and gracious thing. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of God. None of us will make it before him. His wrath is an all-consuming fire. And in Christ, you don't have to stand before it. It's been paid for. That is the gospel. That's the beautiful picture Obadiah paints. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word through Obadiah. Father, help us catch a glimpse of what wrath is. And when we see the wrath that is to come, help us run to Jesus who took that cup, did not pass it on, but satisfied the wrath for sin, and in him we have life. So Jesus, help us rest in that grace. Help us run to Jesus. Help us live for his glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Before we're dismissed today, I want to do something real quickly. School is getting ready to start back. I know uh, we have a few students, uh, high school, middle school, elementary, starting this week. Uh, Covington is starting September 1st. We also have four people in the room getting ready for college. We have Aaron back middle. We have Sean very back. And then we have Jaqueline and Betty getting ready to start school. And, and here's the thing. We've got a ton of teachers in the room. There's a lot of chaos right now, right? I'm tired of hearing the word virtual, but uh, that's what a lot of people are having to do. Uh, we're, we're trying to navigate through some uncharted waters. And so this week, this is what I would love for you to do. Every day, lift up teachers, lift up students. Ask for grace, ask for wisdom, ask for endurance, ask for perseverance. And then let's ask for God to show us ways that we can glorify him in the chaos right now that is COVID-19 and trying to figure out education. All right?